0: your Bibles go with me to Acts chapter 26, Acts chapter 26, we'll be in verses, well, really the whole chapter. Let me begin with catching us up on the storyline here as we move on past from 24 to 26 here, a little bit of what happened in 25. Leading us into 26. Here we see Paul before Festus and King Agrippa in verse 26. But after Paul had been in jail for two years, Felix is succeeded by Portius Festus. And once Festus arrives in the area, he plans to hear the charges against Paul and to hear Paul's defense. As you know from the story, Festus or Paul was Paul's was going to go see Festus, but there was a plot by the Jews to kill Paul, and so Festus and Agrippa and sense, come to see him. Paul gives a defense in, against these false charges. And in the midst of giving a defense against these false charges, he appeals to Caesar for a hearing, since he was, by God's sovereign decree, a Roman citizen. And where we stand at now in the storyline is that King Agrippa is wanting to hear from Paul before Paul leaves to to meet the emperor or Caesar. And so here we have Paul before Festus, particularly King Agrippa, giving his defense for the false charges. Let's read. Starting in verse 2. I consider myself fortunate that as before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. and Paul said whether short or long i would to god that not only you but also all who hear me this day might become such as i am except for these chains let's pray father may may our minds be enlightened this morning may our hearts be set ablaze may our hands go do the work Father, by the power of your Spirit, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. What's Paul's goal? What's Paul's goal in this setting with King Agrippa? Look at verse 28 and 29. Because Paul's goal... It's going to help us understand what is going on ultimately. Like what is is being said between the lines, if you will. What is the purpose of what Paul's saying? And then if we understand the purpose of what Paul's doing, or the goal or the aim to which Paul is speaking, then there we'll have a few things to learn. Verse 28 and 29, And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Paul is using, here's what's happening Paul is using this trial, this persecution, this suffering, even if you will, this moment to alleviate the suffering. I mean, he could give this grand, perfect defense and use it to get rid of the suffering. But what's Paul's goal? To persuade the king and all those listening to become as Paul is, except for the chains. What's he mean? His goal is to persuade them to follow Jesus. That they would follow the resurrected one, that they would forsake their self righteousness, that they would leave the, the ways of the world, that they would trade in their gospels for the true gospel and follow Jesus. Now, listen, sometimes it's okay to defend oneself. I mean, certainly that is a, a byproduct of what Paul's doing here. He is defending himself, he's giving his defense, and it's not necessarily wrong to do that, but. Paul's ultimate goal here is to be persuasive with the gospel. It is to speak the gospel and to speak it unapologetically in a way that is persuasive to his listeners. So, first of all, I want to say that it's okay. This is not an argument against giving a defense of oneself, even though that is very hard to do and to do it without boasting. But what must be a regular part of the rhythm of our lives even in the midst of trials, suffering, and an opportunity for defense is that we be about the proclamation of the gospel. That may our suffering, may our defense if it be unjust suffering, be the gospel. So he proceeds to Seek to persuade with the gospel. The problem for you and I is that most of our time is spent defending ourselves or our kingdom or our own version of the gospel that we've mistrewed or misunderstand or have twisted. Where we run around trying to persuade others and ourselves that our kingdom is best or that we're in control or that life is good if you just do it my way. I think about that for a second. What do you seek to persuade your coworkers of? what What is the what is the uh, the undertone, like the 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 undercurrent of your conversations with your coworkers, with your spouse, with your classmates, with your children? What is it that you're that you're trying to get them to believe and trying to get them to understand and that's below the surface of all the fluff and all the other things that you say to them. What are you trying to get to them? Are you trying to get them to, to see you as great, to see you as glorious? Are you trying to get them to just do what you want them to do? I mean, what, what, what's your aim? What's your goal? Ultimately, what needs to change in your life today for you to be courageously? Persuasive with God's gospel, not yours. That's the question I want to answer today. As we work through this, moving towards that goal, we want to talk about how is it that Paul is actually persuasive with the gospel? If you want a sermon on evangelism, this is kind of a sermon on evangelism, but maybe not using some of the same terms. How are we persuasive with the gospel? How do we, how do we, not be a salesman. In a in a wrong sense, but in, in the sense of how do we how do we present the gospel in a way, that is true, is accurate, is is contextualized, is is, caring for the people around us, and so on and so forth. We won't answer every question about this, but there are certainly aspects to which Paul, or aspects of how Paul is working through the gospel here in verse 26 things that we can learn here as well let's ask this question first as we think through this who needs to be persuaded with the gospel I just want to ask that question just broadly who needs to be persuaded with the gospel now to answer that first of all ultimately all of us do ultimately all of us do even those who have been once persuaded by the gospel must be persuaded by the gospel every day I, mean, I don't know about your heart, but I know my heart wanders daily, sometimes even moment by moment, from trusting and being persuaded of the good news of Jesus to trying to grasp for the good news that I can make happen with my own hands. So that is true in an ultimate sense, but we'll kind of dial that back. I want you to look at King Agrippa. King Agrippa in verse 26, chapter 26 verse 27, says this. Actually, Paul says this, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Agrippa believed the prophets. Did you hear what Paul has said? You see, there are portions of Scripture, even prophecies concerning the Savior, and Agrippa believes them. Paul says this, And yet, it's clear from the passage that Agrippa is not a follower of Jesus Christ. You say, you mean, I could believe the truth concerning Jesus? I could believe the prophets? I could believe what they're saying and still not be a follower of Jesus? I could sit in here right now listening to a teacher about the Scriptures and believe certain sets of truth that are supposed to be all the right ones and still not be a follower of Jesus? Yeah, you could. It's likely in this room that there are probably multiple of us who sit in that seat. Listen, Satan and his demons believe more truth and believe it more accurately concerning Jesus than many of us do. That means that some of us could believe the truth about Jesus and still not be a follower of Jesus and just as badly as King Agrippa need to be persuaded of the gospel. Uh, Joquel Crow in her book writes this, those who claim to follow Jesus but don't actually know Him, you can tell someone that He died on a cross, you can pray to Him sometimes, you listen to some Christian music and occasionally share a Christian meme, but you don't know God relationally. I would add to that, a warm fuzzy when you think about Jesus doesn't constitute a relationship. So who needs to be persuaded of the gospel as we think about, basically just here for a few moments, true Christianity? I was served really well by the sermon that Piper, that John Piper preached at Together for the gospel, where he makes an argument that the most basic to a follower's salvation, like the most foundational reality to a follower of Jesus's, uh, or to the most basic uh, reality or truth of someone who is a follower of Jesus, is not new beliefs, it's not new decisions of the will, but instead is new affections. A heart that's been turned from darkness to light, that now desires the glory of God, that loves the Lord, that has new affections, It wants to treasure Christ. Now certainly this person will want, there will be new decisions of the will, there will be new beliefs that are involved in that, but what is most basic and most foundational is new affections. These people will want to read their Bibles. They will want to pursue holiness. They will not want to miss church for stupid reasons. They will give themselves to community. They will certainly do all those things, but new affections is what is at the very root, and new affections is something that you and I cannot do ourselves. It is something that God must bring about in us. Jacques Crowe says this again, Christians treasure Christ and devalue everything else in comparison. Like their love for Jesus becomes more paramount. And it's not that you love other things. Like it's not that you necessarily hate those things, but it's it's even the good things you love them much less compared to your treasuring of Jesus. We have new affections, Piper said, because of a new God. Right? The thing you love, that is your God. And so when you get a new God, the right God. You treasure Jesus. Paul says this. Paul says something similar in chapter 20, verse 24. Paul says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, which is what? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What's Paul saying? Paul saying, I treasure The gospel of the grace of God, which is what? Jesus. I treasure that more than anything else. What's Paul saying? The things I once loved, that which was precious to me, it's not the same anymore. It's not the same. What is precious to me is the gospel of the grace of God. It's Jesus. Jesus. Let me ask this question is this true of you is this true of you once again back to jockwell Croce, she says this do i live like that do i live like jesus is better than my phone is jesus better than my body is Jesus better than my makeup is jesus better than sports would i gladly give it all up without hesitation for jesus would i really Let me ask you this question. Are you giving it up right now? Are you giving it up right now? Are you giving up right now? Not Theoretically, I think this would be true of me in the future if I was so posed the question and given the ultimatum of having to choose. I don't think you realize that so much of our daily lives, you're making that decision right now. You're making that decision right now. You made that decision yesterday. You made that decision three days ago. You've been making the decision all week. It's not just a theoretical question of what someone's going to hold a gun to yourself or you're going to give something up for Jesus. It's in the mundane moments where you choose one or you choose the other. Listen, I, I want to kind of draw this point here to a close, because not the main point, but certainly something we need to think about. We, we need to be thinking about salvation in these terms, meaning, meaning thinking about who is saved and needs to be persuaded with the gospel. Because I think, listen, here, for, for our sake, we need to think of salvation in these terms because we may not be a true follower of Jesus. But also thinking of salvation in these terms because, for the sake of others, because we may assume someone, a follower, and thus assume them to hell. When God has placed you in their life to share the gospel with them, to be persuasive with the gospel with them. But so Paul's goal here is to be persuasive. There's, there's no doubt about it. He confesses this explicitly. Yes, I am here to convince you, and not just you, but all of you, of Jesus. To help bring people who don't believe the gospel to become people who believe, cherish, and follow Jesus. So I want to look at this today. How does, how does kind of with that framework there, how does Paul do this? Here we have some help. And how to think and how to do this. The first one is this. Rely on help from God and exalt Jesus. Rely on help from God and exalt Jesus. Chapter 26, verse, I'm sorry, 26, verse 22. First part says, to this day, I've had the help that comes from God. I've had the help that comes from God. Paul reminds us that help comes from God for God's tasks. I remind you, we've talked about this before. Help from God doesn't come for our tasks, which is usually where burnout, lack of perseverance comes from, is when we're usually doing tasks that God's called us to do. We must rely on His power and His grace. On the other part of that point, we must exalt Jesus. It's really easy for us to make ourselves the center of the story. It's easy to make us the center, the purpose, the end, the goal of the story. Well, I was rescued from this and went on to do this because of Jesus. Listen, if you're at the center of your gospel story, then it isn't a gospel story. Let me say that in maybe more common vernacular. If you're at the center of your testimony, your actions, your doings, your decisions, then it's not a testimony of the gospel. It's a testimony of yourself. Paul always went to great lengths to make sure Jesus was the exalted one in his stories. Watch him; Even here, keeps going back to this person who raised people from the dead. I was convinced of opposing Jesus. Who's the hero there? Jesus is. I punished these people. He's not convinced con- He's not presenting himself as some hero. He's not presenting himself in a good light. He's presenting Christ in a good light. He's proclaiming Jesus. I mean, read his letters. Same thing you will see there. So let me ask you this question. When you think about a gospel story and exalting Jesus, and being persuasive with the gospel, can you talk about the righteous life that Jesus lived that you and I could not and have not? Can you talk about the righteous life? Can you share that and talk about that with somebody else? Can you talk about how he took your sins upon his shoulders? Because your sins crushed you and would ultimately send you to hell. Can you talk about how he took that? Like Not just that he did take it, but what does it mean for him to take it? Why was it necessary for him to take your sins? Can you talk about what it means for him to be an advocate on behalf of yourself before the Father right now? When you think about that, when you think about us, humble creatures before a holy God needing someone to stand in advocacy for us right now as an ongoing role, who does that make to be the hero of the story? It's not you and I. It puts us in a position of need. It puts us in a position of wanting, of lacking. Can you talk about how God gave you new affections? Can you point to new affections? Listen, we're talking about more than just platitudes. Platitudes. Oh, Jesus is great. Oh, how I love Jesus. I mean, that's great if you mean it. But if you mean it, then you should be able to talk about these other things. See, Paul was always focused on exalting Christ. More than just platitudes. Second, give respect and remember what you once were. Give respect and remember what you once were. Again, we're answering this question. What does it look like to be persuasive? How is Paul being persuasive in this passage? Now, it's really kind of give respect, and you will give respect if largely if you remember what you once were. Just like you'll rely on help from God if you realize the exaltation of Jesus. Because if Jesus is exalted, you will realize you have nowhere else to turn but to rely on God. But to give respect, give respect. In verse 2, he says, I consider myself fortunate, that it is before you, King Agrippa. Listen, what we say, what we say, the actual content, is certainly more important than how we say it. But how we say it is important too. It's important for pragmatic reasons, but it's more importantly because it simply honors God. How we say it honors God, but it also has, again, pragmatic reasons. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that for the next few moments. Give respect doesn't mean just to simply smile and say nice words. I... I I've said in many conversations, (laughs) it doesn't just mean smile and say nice words. Listen, Jesus was harsh to the religious leaders. He was harsh. He was blunt. He was brash. He was even sarcastic. I would contend that he would probably have sent them a Babylon Bee article here or there. But to the average lost person, he wouldn't have. He wouldn't have. I mean, at least from what we see in his model, how he lived, he wouldn't have. He was gentle, he was respectful, he showed them dignity. What does it look like to show them dignity? What is is Paul doing here as he's talking to King Agrippa? He's showing him dignity. He's showing him respect. How do you show them dignity? Uh, A few thoughts on that. Realize that they too bear the image of God. Paul understands that King Agrippa is an image bearer, that he's not just a some animal on earth. He's someone who bears the image of God. And if you view someone as bearing the image of God, then you will show them dignity. You will show them respect. Now, if we're thinking about in terms of being persuasive with the gospel, I would encourage you with these few practical thoughts here. Assume that they have good reasons for what they believe. Assume that they have good reasons. I think Paul's assuming King Agrippa and those around him have good reasons for what they believe. He just thinks they're wrong. You'd be amazed at how many people get offended at that. No, I think you're wrong. Oh! That's Paul's point. Paul's point in this passage is you all are wrong. Be persuaded of what is right. That in our culture today, even in the church, is horrendous in the sight of most people. I want to be right. And I don't want you to tell me that I'm wrong. But listen, assume that they have good reasons. It just may not be the right reasons, or they might be, and when I say good reasons, what I don't mean is this. I don't mean that they're sufficient to make what they're believing is right. What I mean is that assume that they have support, that they have thought through for why they believe what they believe. That will save you from approaching them as arrogant, like in an arrogant manner, uh, coming down on someone who doesn't quite have it figured out yet. Assume they have reasons for what they believe. Listen to where they are and where they're coming from. Listen to where they are and where they're coming from. Paul Understands where King Agrippa is coming from. He appeals to King Agrippa's past. He appeals to the context in which King Agrippa was raised in. Like he assumes, don't you understand this? But Jesus, when he died, King Agrippa would have been about eight years old. And Paul appeals to this reality that King Agrippa would have known this life of Jesus. So he says, You've seen these things. They've not happened where? They've not happened in a corner. They've not happened in a dark place where no one else could see it. What's he saying? King Agrippa, these events of Jesus' life happened before your eyes. And he appeals to that. So he appeals to where King Agrippa would be coming from. Next, listen to show compassion, to sympathize, not to just simply Persuade. Not to just simply persuade. Now, I want you to, I want you to listen. This, you need to grab a hold of this too. You can do all these things perfectly right. And if someone doesn't want to hear the truth, they will use these all as excuses to not listen to not hear the truth. That's why I start off with the truth is paramount. But how we say the truth is also important. But the reality is is you can say the truth in the most appropriate and loving and kind way. And if someone doesn't want to hear it, they will not hear it. That's why we started off with we have to rely on help from God. God is the one that changes people's minds. God is the one that gives them a new heart for new affections. So show them dignity. But sometimes also it's helpful to people to explain our perspectives and our practices prior to our conversion. Sometimes it's helpful to explain our perspectives and practices prior to conversion. What do I mean by that? Paul talks about who he once was. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a persecutor of Christians. On a pragmatic side, this helps gain a hearing sometimes. It at least in part gains a hearing because it shows compassion. Because if this is who you once were, then you should be humble. And our ability to identify with those who are listening to us is super important. But listen to this. Your personal story is not the gospel. Your experience is not the gospel. The way God saved you, what God saved you from is not the gospel. Let me explain that. It's easy for us to impose that on other people. Now listen. The way God saved you in this sense is the gospel, and the way God saved you in this other sense is not the gospel. I'm going to give you both of those, okay? The way God saved you in this sense, where He gave you a new heart that had new affections because of a new God, where you now believe that Jesus died as the payment for your sins, and now He justifies you as if you'd never sinned by covering you with the blood of Jesus. That, in that sense, that's the gospel. In this sense, that, uh, you know, you were in VBS or you were in church and someone shared the gospel and you walked the aisle and and then got said a prayer and signed a card or whatever the case is. That's not necessarily the gospel. Is that, is it, that isn't the gospel someone else's salvation might look completely different and we have to be careful that when we're sharing the gospel that we don't impose our stories that are unique to us and by God's grace and glory and beauty are unique to us that we don't impose that onto other people but we must on the other hand impose the gospel like that be persuasive with the gospel this is how God saves people in the first example I just gave. So as we're thinking about, give respect, remembering what you once were. So what Paul is doing is he's recounting the Pharisee of the Pharisees and, and one who persecuted them. He he's he's telling them who he once was. And as we think about this, think about the ways in which you kicked against the goad. Right? Think about the ways you kicked against the goad. Meaning, mean, you kicked against God's prodding you along towards faith in Jesus. How did you kick against that? Get, get, stop, stop, get away from me. I think it's helpful to be prepared to summarize your experiences as you're, as you're sharing the gospel. That's what Paul's doing. Paul clearly believes that it's going to be practically helpful to share how he kicked against the goats. Again, explaining your former assumptions, your former misconceptions, even sins maybe that the Lord has delivered you from. It's a common question that even came up in our house gathering this past week. Well, well, what if I got saved at a young age? And I don't, there's not a lot before that that I can share, you know, I was playing with blocks and building things, you know, uh... I was getting potty trained. God saved me at a young age. This is Just a couple practical encouragements for you. I, I, I relate particularly here. Think about how you kick against the goads right now. Think about how you kick against the goads right now. Particularly, think about how you kick against the goads at a very root level. Thinking idolatry here, thinking power, comfort, whatever, I mean, again, this is just a practical help. You you realize that that would be, pick your number, 10,000 times worse today if God had not saved you. If He had not given you a new heart and a spirit to come reign in your life. Listen, that's a story to tell. That's that's something to relate to. You can go, okay, you know, I know where I would be at if it was not for the grace of God and if not for his saving work in my life. But then on, the, on the, another aspect of this, I would encourage you with this too, is what is your testimony right now? What is your testimony right now? Now, your walk with the Lord should be so dynamic that you see your sinfulness now and you wrestle with it, but you also see the hope of the gospel and his saving work in your life right now. How are you kicking against the goad right now? Listen, that's what Paul is saying. This is who I was this is who I am now. Later in Romans, he's gonna say, Right now, I struggle with who I once was and, and, and who I who I, I know I need to be now and who I want to be now, and I struggle with this. This is testimony right now, and God is slowly delivering me from this right now. This helps us give respect to people who are struggling also helps us relate and be compassionate when we remember who we once were. Personal transparency, someone said, can go a long way. So now let's talk, let's talk a little bit more about like, actually being persuasive with the good news of Jesus Christ. I was helped a good bit by Keller through a couple of these points. But be persuasive with the gospel. How are we persuasive with the actual gospel? We're thinking about people at a kind of a, a fundamental level of how we are convinced of certain things, how we actually become persuaded. We tend to put against each other rational persuasion, like being persuaded by uh, something that's rational versus something that's emotional or experiential or personal, if you will. Usually it's one or the other. And we kind of even forget about something that's biblical. We tend to kind of argue in those two things. But listen, God works in all of those ways. First of all, God is concerned with the rational. God is concerned with what is concerned with what makes rational sense. It doesn't mean that everything always makes sense to us, but God is certainly concerned with the rational. It makes sense to him. Verse 25, but Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and what? Rational words. What I'm saying is rational. It makes sense. It's intelligible. He says to Paul, you're out of your mind, right? He says, your your learnedness is causing you to go crazy. Paul says, nah, it's true and it's reasonable. He doesn't go to emotions. He doesn't go to experience, oh, but I know that Jesus is true. Oh, but I have felt Jesus. What's he go to? He goes to public evidence. He goes to public evidence. When I said earlier that Agrippa would have been about eight and growing up in Jerusalem. He would have known. like These people would have known. And what's Paul appeal to? He appeals to that. He appeals to what Agrippa would have known. He would have been familiar. King Agrippa would have been familiar with the reality of Jesus, with his life and his crucifixion. He may not have liked it. He may not have agreed with it. He may, but he was familiar with it. It was something that was a reality for him. And so he appeals to something that's reasonable. Again, Paul assumes that anyone who lived in Jerusalem in the past 20 years could not have laughed off Jesus. Oh, he wasn't here. Oh, those things didn't happen. No, they would have known what he did, the miracles that he did, the, the death on the cross, the empty tomb. Now again, he might have had other explanations for these things, but Paul still appeals to what is reasonable rational in Agrippa's life. So let me ask you the question: do you believe the gospel is rational? Do you understand the rationality of the gospel do you can you understand the rationality of people's pursuit of idolatries and and loves and misplaced affections and how these things show a, uh, this innate desire for something in us beyond ourselves something that we can't fulfill like do you understand there's so much more to this but do you believe that the gospel is rational that life has a good bit of rationality and the gospel explains much of it Is there proof and evidence in this for the scriptures and what's rational and Paul like in, in the same vein as what Paul is appealing to Can you have a conversation like that with people? I'm not. not I'm saying, Do you, can you sit down with the most well-known atheist and hold your own? That would be a little hard. I get it. <laughs> Maybe you could. But can you, with your coworker, explain and contextualize for them the rationality of the gospel? We want to be persuasive. We need to think about the rationality of the gospel. The second is God is concerned with the, i got like three words here, the personal or the emotional or the experiential. God is concerned with this too. Look at Paul's argument. If you look at Paul's argument from the beginning to the end, he is saying that he was the Jew of Jews. He was awesome at keeping God's law. He says, I killed those who couldn't keep the law as good as I did. And why do you think Paul did that? Paul, Paul, in order to boost his own self-righteousness, had to go around and squash all those around him to to uplift himself. But at some point, if, if you remember back... Earlier on in Acts, we talked about this in the first time Paul tells his testimony. But at some point in Paul's life, Romans 7 comes to the forefront. Now, he wasn't reading Romans 7, but Romans 7 was happening, right, in Paul's mind. He was turmoil. There was turmoil in Paul's heart He was studying the Ten Commandments. Now, if you remember, all of the Ten Commandments can largely be explained or lived out behaviorally. Thou shalt not murder. Well, I didn't murder, so I'm good, Paul would say. But then he gets to coveting. Thou shalt not covet. What's it mean to covet? That's not really just a behavioral thing. That's a, that's a mental thing, right? That's not just an action. That's an inside thing. I'm coveting. There's something that I want and I cannot have and I want it and it's controlling me. That's what I want. Paul knew, this is what Paul knew when it came to the idea of coveting. That this one means that I should love God so much and trust Him so much That I am so satisfied that I'm content. I'm always content, no matter what my situation is. I'm content. And Paul, when he gets this, he goes, It's not me. It's not me. I can't do that. And if you read Romans 7, Paul was crushed. Paul was crushed. I want to remind you at this point that we must speak honestly about the sinful condition of humans, of mankind. If we don't speak honestly about our sinful condition, then we will have nothing but cheap grace. What are people being saved from? So as you think about being persuasive people, we must speak honestly and there's winsome and careful ways to do this, but honestly, ultimately, honestly, about the sinful condition of their hearts and ours. Paul came to this realization of the sinful condition of his heart. I can't do that. And so it caused this inner turmoil in Paul. And Jesus says this. Why, why is there this inner turmoil in Paul? Jesus says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, Right? kind of poking at Paul when he says it's hard to kick against the goads, right? A goad was a poker. It was a go, move the sheep along. Jesus, Here's what Jesus is saying to Paul in verse 26. It's hard, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, and here's what he's saying. The tremendous pain that's been happening in your heart. That was me. That was me. No, is Jesus the one that's inflicting the pain? No. Jesus is poking him along. The pain is revealing is that he doesn't want to go the direction Jesus wants him to go. So the turmoil is inside of him. He wants something, and he can't have it. This covetousness. And Jesus is using that to show Paul that he needs a savior. Like, church, do you understand that the tremendous pain of the idolatry in your own heart is Jesus graciously goading you along? Now, listen, Paul is in this moment, we step back for a second. Paul is in this moment being persuasive with the gospel, and he's talking about this personal, emotional, experiential aspect of his life that's what he's saying I was the Jew of Jews Jesus says it's hard for you to kick against the goads listen on the outside Paul looked awesome but on the inside Paul felt his guilt his shame his insecurity etc and this was the goads that Jesus was sticking in Paul's side listen anyone who is honest knows the turmoil we speak of this morning trying to measure up to somewhere in our lives and we keep failing or trying to get a hold of joy and it keeps slipping through our fingers and trying to prove ourselves worthy to a God that we don't even know its name. And then we have guilt and shame and insecurity inside. This is the experience of our lives. It's certainly the experience of the lives of the people we work with The people we go to school with, the people that we go to church with. And you can help people see this and accept it. This is not something to run from, it's not something to suppress, it's not something to, oh, it's not really that bad. No, listen, it's worse than you realize, dear co worker of mine. It's worse than you realize. You're just beginning to see the, the, the gist of what it looks like to, to want something that you cannot have or to pursue wholeness here, but it will leave you empty. This is your experience, I know, and it's not something to hide. It's not something to squash. It's not something to busy yourself away from. But then if you see, Paul says, it's hard for you to kick against the ghost, but then what happens for Paul? Again, talking about his experience here. That he's laying out for them. Paul sees the gospel. That's what happens. Paul sees the gospel. Again, if we must speak honestly about the reality of sinfulness in people's hearts, we must also speak honestly about the amazing grace of Jesus towards sinners. If we don't, then we have nothing more than a works-based, self-righteous, supposedly saving legalism. Paul sees the gospel that Jesus would suffer, die, and rise again. And those who believe in him would be forgiven. Now Paul realized that the only way he can obey the law is because of the gospel itself. That even this coveting thing that he cannot attain, or this lack of covetousness that he cannot attain, that the only way to get there is to realize that he has everything he could ever want or need in God because it was given to him through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul was crushed on the inside, but now Paul had hope. It made emotional, experiential sense to Paul. When you and I start to hear it, it sounds like this. I am such a sinner. I'm in desperate need of salvation. But I have been rescued. Jesus is my saving hope. So God's concerned about the rational. He's concerned about personal, emotional, experiential. And Paul also argues biblically I mean, certainly there's biblical aspects in this, but Paul argues, he says this, what I am saying is in line with the prophets. you see that? Paul argues, Paul's arguing all three of these ways in the midst of this persuasion. And now he goes, what I'm saying is in line with the prophets. Paul is saying, and I quote, not only is it rational or emotional, but the Bible comes alive when you read it as if it's all about Jesus Christ christ listen jesus is the place where the rational and the personal come together in the biblical and i quote as you read the bible especially about jesus you see him doing things it's beautiful breathtaking and at the same time rational it's both rational and experiential it makes rational sense and at the same time it's filled with hope It's personal, meaningful. It's even emotional, dare I say. When you look at Jesus, you can't just explain him away. He brings the rational and the emotional together. What's happening in Christ is your heart and your mind is being persuaded. Going back to the first point, who needs to be persuaded? Our hearts and our minds have to be both persuaded. Listen, Paul isn't worried ultimately about his defense. He's concerned with persuading them all to the gospel of Jesus. Now listen, he's in the midst of this defense. Let me ask you this question. Where does our boldness come from? Where does Paul's boldness come from? I mean, look at the ridicule of Paul. Festus called him insane. He says, You've studied so much, Paul, you can't see what's right in front of your eyes. You're dumb. You don't get it, Paul. You're crazy. We're simply called to deliver the message about humanity's need for Jesus. Only God converts. Where does our boldness come from? Where did Paul get the boldness? Yes, King Agrippa. Listen, I, I'm not only not crazy. I'm only, not only not insane. What I'm doing is reasonable. It's rational. And I'm trying to persuade you, and not only you, but all of you. Listen, this, he's on trial for his life. and He goes, you know that thing that you all don't like? Right now, I'm going to give you more of it. Right now. On the one hand, listen, Paul's not arrogant. Paul's not being arrogant. That's someone superior on the outside and inferior on the inside. And the only way for them to work through that is with arrogance, not courage. He's respectful and not afraid. How? Look at verse 18. He says this, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins. And I want to focus here on a particular word. He says this, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Where did Paul get his boldness from? First of all, notice that this boldness that he got—that we're going to talk about in this passage—was a gift. It was received, and what he get? He got forgiveness. But what that forgiveness bring about? So I don't think the focus here in this passage is simply forgiveness, but forgiveness that leads to something else. Forgiveness, and a what? A place. Did you realize? It's one of the most fundamental misunderstandings of Christian, or supposed Christianity in the United States right now. Is that all we get in the gospel is forgiveness? We just get forgiveness. That's the problem with this classic presentation of the gospel and country. That you're saved from hell to heaven and in between you're in some sort of evangelical purgatory. Where you're just trying to bide your time to get to that final place. But Paul says right here that upon forgiveness we get a place right now. A present reality. A place right now among who? Those who are sanctified by faith in me. Forgiveness into a place. That's the thing. We don't just get forgiven. We get forgiven so that we can be in a a place. A new place. A place where you and I finally really, really, truly and genuinely belong. A place where we fit. Keller was helpful on this as well. You get a home. You're not just forgiven. You're not just get, you don't just get an out of jail free card. You and I are given a place brought into the family of God. Accepted. Loved. We have a place now. Let me quote here. Because in the gospel, we are accepted by God, we get response from God, we get acknowledgement from God, we get welcome into the heart of things. End quote. The door is open. What's he saying? He's saying, "Paul, Paul is saying, I have a home with God now. And God is saying, Paul, you have a place with me. It's a gift. And you have a home. Paul knows that he has the high regard and the delight of the king of the universe. And he says, if I have that, If I have that in the midst of this persecution, in the midst of this trial, if I have a place at home with the king of the universe, if I have that, if I have the high regard of God and his delight, then I don't need that from anyone else. I don't need the delight of King Agrippa in what I'm saying. I don't need King Agrippa's favor upon my life. I don't need my coworker to be affirming of what I want. I don't need my church friend or church member to like me of concerning what I need to say. I've got gods. But now, here's a question. Where has Paul seen this before? Where has Paul seen someone who knew he had a place at home with God? He saw it with Stephen. And the face of being stoned, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. His face was like the face of an angel. Listen, Paul is okay in this moment. If you believe the gospel and you believe you have a place with God and it is yours you can proclaim the gospel. Nothing that will crush you. Nothing can take you down. Listen, if you want to be persuasive with the gospel, you must be persuaded of the truth of the gospel. That's why we struggle with being persuasive with the gospel. We, to the degree to which you have been persuaded of the truth of the Gospel, is the degree of your boldness and your power in persuasion with the Gospel. So Christian, be persuaded. You have a place in the throne room of God Almighty. You have the ear of the King. You have the favor of God the favor of the God of heaven and earth. You have the love of the Father. What more do you want? What more do you want? Why is that not enough? What else could we possibly need? Be persuaded that if you've been covered by the blood of Jesus, You have a place. You have forgiveness and have been brought into God's presence. That's what the gospel that has been so unfortunately preached for many years in our culture is missing. So we're not just forgiven. We're forgiven and brought into the presence of Almighty God. And it's in His presence that there's nothing else that we need, right? That's the whole picture of revelation, is that we'll be in the presence of God. There'll be no more brokenness. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more need. No more wanting, for it will all be there. It'll all be secured. It'll all be before our eyes. We will live in the glory of God. So church, be persuaded. And so be courageously persuasive. You have the good news of the gospel, hope for those who are far from God just as you and I once were. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the hope of the Gospel. Father, thank You for the graciousness that You show. Father, You are marvelous and beautiful and perfect, Father, and Why would we want to be in any place other than your presence? Father, give us hearts, new affections that love being in your presence and knowing the reality of what it means to be in your presence, that that we've been bought by a price, bought for a price. We have been covered in the blood and welcomed into your throne room. And because... We have a place in your throne room. We can live as we should in this kingdom. Knowing that we are ultimately citizens of your kingdom. We are ultimately people huh, We're ultimately people who walk in the presence of the holy God. Father, when this is something we are persuaded of, we can say compassionately, tenderly what needs to be said, the reality of the sinfulness of man's heart and the hopefulness of the saving work of Jesus Christ as one. The one who died to pay the price for their sins. For our sins. Father, may we be persuaded so that we will be bold with your gospel. To our co-workers, our friends, our neighbors, our spouses, our children, and ourselves. Father, for your glory and our good, it's in Jesus' name, amen.